0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As we continue on in our series on the doctrines of grace, we come now to the letter U, which stands for unconditional election. As a reminder, we looked at the letter T last week, total depravity. The biggest thing that we need to take away from that sermon is not that each person is sinning as much as they possibly can, that all people sin equally, the the equal amount of sin, but that we are all equally ruined by sin Because we have a sinful nature. Ephesians 2 says that we are children of wrath. Meaning that by nature we are deserving the wrath of God. So then how is it that 1 John 3.1 tells us that God has shown us such incredible love in making us children of God. How can we be both children of wrath? and children of God. There seems to be a, a discontinuity going on here in Scripture, or at least at the surface level. So that's what we'll begin to answer in today's sermon in looking at the doctrine of unconditional election, is we're, we're going to begin answering how it is that one can be be a child of wrath and then become a child of God what is it that's happening what we will say here today might be very challenging for you and listen I understand that but let me encourage you to be okay with being challenged we live in a day and age where we devote much of our our mental bandwidth to our job to hobbies, to school, to, to other things of this world. But when it comes to the things of God, we so often don't want to have to think deeply. We don't want to be challenged in the mind. We don't want to have to think through things. Well, friends, certainly one reason that God has given us a mind and the capacity to think is so that we might use that brain to think deep thoughts about Him so that we can try to understand Him and His Word more. So, this morning, think biblically through what you believe. Ask yourself this morning whether what you believe is what you believe because you've always believed it, or do you believe what you believe because those beliefs are derived from the pages of Scripture. Let us remember also that as we work through this doctrine of election and we are at times perhaps tempted to want to question God, let's be reminded that God is not on trial. Where we are the ones who are going to determine whether or not He is a good God whether or not we like the things that he does. He's not even in the witness stand where he must answer our barrage of questions. Ask Job. Job can tell you that quite well. Neither is he a specimen to be examined meticulously under a microscope. No, Scripture is God's self-revelation. All of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is telling us who God is. And guess what, friends? God is who he is, whether you and I like it or not. The truth is the truth, whether you and I like it or not. However, I hope that this morning we would come humbly before the book, that we would come reverently to the book, and that we would not seek to question God, but question our own beliefs about God, making sure that our beliefs come from the pages of the written word. So our duty as believers is not to pick and choose the things that we like and dislike about God or to question Him arrogantly, why He does the things the way He does them. Our duty as believers, as created created, Beings no less is to say, along with Moses, show me your glory. It is to say, along with the psalmist, open my eyes that I might see great and wonderful truth from your word. It is good and right for us to question our own thinking, and even to question, uh, ask questions of the text for the sake of clarity. But let's just be very careful this morning that we not question God. Now, I will concede that what we are stepping into deeper waters this morning. And there will be some aspects of this doctrine and many others that are beyond our finite human comprehension. My goal this morning is not to answer every single question that arises in the human mind, because that's impossible. There will be some things we simply will not know until we're in glory. Think of the mindset of Deuteronomy 29.29 that says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. And my friends... The doctrine of unconditional election, the Bible has revealed much about it to us. And those things are for us to love and cherish and worship and adore. But there are things that will be beyond our grasp. And those things are for the Lord. I want to state the definition of the doctrine of unconditional election and then we'll read our text The doctrine of unconditional election is that God has chosen in eternity past without any regard to the individual's merit who would be the recipients of his sovereign grace. Let me say it more plainly. God chose who he would save before the creation of the world, and he did so without any consideration of the worthiness of. Of the ones he elected. Now this is quite biblical. And we're going to look at the texts today. But let's understand that this also naturally follows logically. That if man is totally depraved and in love with his sin. Then of course there's no merit or worthiness in man. Of course we're not worthy of worship. We're ruined or worthy of salvation. We're ruined by sin. So that stands to reason now, doesn't it? And of course, if we only choose sin in our sinful nature, but there are some who are saved, then someone else must be doing the choosing for us. Let's read our text. I invite you to stand as we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This is the word of the living and the true God. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, Sovereign of all, Ancient of Days, Alpha and Omega, we approach you this morning. And we want to be humble and reverent as we open your word. And we ask that you would open us to your word, that you would open your word to us, Lord, and help us to see and understand. Lord, this doctrine of election is so profound and so beautiful. I pray that we would be comforted greatly in understanding that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Lord, that when we are tempted to our flesh to rile up in anger against this, that you would quiet us with your love. Help us to see and understand clearly for the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to walk through this text, but we're not going to deal with everything in the text because our focus is on What are we learning about the doctrine of election in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6? So there will be things here that we simply won't deal with today. But I do want to point out to you that the verse begins in verse 3 with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So understand that the opening here is the praise and the worship of God. Paul is breaking out in doxology in a great song of praise and worship to God. Verses 3 through 6 that we just read in the original are actually one long sentence. That's why we're taking that to be our section of study today. It's one long sentence. And it's book-ended, if you look in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. So, we have a sandwich, if you will. At the beginning, the first layer, he opens with the praise of God. And then we have the substance in verses 4, 5, and even 6. And it's going to end in verse 6, again, in the praise and worship of God. So understand, that's what Paul has in mind here. As he's dealing with very profound, wonderful truth, it's for the praise and worship of God. So let's look at the reality of our election. If you're taking notes, the reality of our election. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. We begin here because of Paul's very clear statement. Three words. He chose us. Did you see that? He chose us. Us. This is not a vague statement, and it's not one that even leaves any wiggle room for interpretation. It's a clear, concise phrase, and it's chosen purposefully. The word here, chose, in the original is used 22 times in the New Testament. And 16 of those times, it's in some way referring to God choosing something or someone. So it is carrying the the sense of God's selecting something or someone for his own reasons or purposes from a number of alternatives. It indicates to us divine initiative that God acted first. I want you to notice the three pronouns here that are being used. Three pronouns and one verb. He says, he chose us in him. He is referring to the Father. The second pronoun is us. Guess who that refers to? Us. You and I. Believers across time and space. The people of God. And the third pronoun is Him. And who's the Him? Well, that points back to the Lord Jesus Christ from verse 3. So he's saying, He, the Father, chose us, believers, In Him, the Son, Jesus Christ. The Father is acting upon us, the recipients of the action. Why are we doing this grammar lesson? I want you to see clearly that the Father is the active party. What is the us doing? It is receiving the action of chose. The Father chooses... And he does so in Christ, and we in the middle are the ones who are chosen. What I want to say under this heading is that the most fundamental reason why a person is saved is because God chose for that person to be saved. That's what the text says. God chose us in him. Again, we are passive And God is the active. Often we think of our own salvation. And we think of the time when we walked the aisle. Or we raised our hand. Or we put the check mark on the connection card. Or we prayed a prayer. We said yes to the the gospel call. Those moments in our life might have been very important moments. When we were actually genuinely converted. However. What caused you to choose christ is that god the father first chose you in christ do you understand the reason why you chose christ is because the father chose you in christ that's what paul is saying god elects who he will save not just a people group as some people erroneously argue, but he elects individuals. This is a a personal choice. He says, God chose us. That's you and I. A bunch of you and I's make up an us. Isn't that the most profound thing you've ever heard from a pulpit? A bunch of you and I's make up an us. That means that there are individuals that God is choosing in Christ. And the ones that God has chosen in Christ will come to choose Christ. Other examples of this are in Acts 13.48. If you're taking notes, Acts 13.48. Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen and As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you hear that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word appointed there is being used in the sense of being assigned or put into a particular position. In other words, that the ones who had been assigned to eternal life, who had been put into the position to believe They believed. It's not the other way around. We don't believe our way into being appointed. Do you see that? He doesn't say, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. He says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What was the cause there? The cause of their belief. It was God appointing them to life? They did not believe themselves into it. Jacob read earlier from Second Thessalonians, he says, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. That couldn't be much more plain. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Once again, the reason why you or anyone else has ever believed in Christ for salvation is because God first chose you in Christ to be saved. For some of you, this might be the first time that you're ever hearing something like this, and I understand that. But I want to take a moment to point out that this is not Paul developing some new variety of sovereign election or some new view of God. This is how God has always operated. Think back with me to the Old Testament. Who in the Old Testament do we say were the people of God? Israel. And we have no problem with saying that Israel is God's chosen People, Deuteronomy 7.6 This is God speaking. Listen to how direct this is. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Do you hear God speaking to Israel? I choose you Israel. The reason why Israel is known as the people of God is because God made them His people. Think about them. They were in bondage in Egypt, weren't they? They weren't even in their own land. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have their own boundaries. God freed them from Egypt. He brought them to the promised land. But before they were even in Egypt, Israel was only in the mind of God and in the promise that he made to Abraham to give him more offspring than there were stars in the sky. Oddly enough, we know that God chose Israel and we don't seem to have a problem with that. Yet when we think of this same principle of God's sovereign choosing of a people in Christ, so often we insist it cannot be so. It can't be that way. Why? Because we insist on what we do to be saved. We insist, no, I chose. No, I did. No, I. No, I. No, me. No, I. No, me. But listen, friends. There will not be any one of us who who are in heaven who will say, I am so glad I chose to be here. You know what we will all be saying? I am so glad he chose me to be here. So then why not now? I'm so glad God chose me to be saved. Our second heading is the time of our election. He says, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of of the world, Listen, this is not hyperbolic. Paul is not just using hyperbole to say a long time ago. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is choosing his words very carefully, saying, before the world was founded, God chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world. It's almost as though, in case the language of He chose us in Him was not strong enough. Let's make it even stronger. He chose us in Him. Oh, He chose us in Him whenever we chose to be in Christ, right? No. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. How long ago was that? Let's suffice it to say a very long time ago. Back when it was only the triune God dwelling in perfect unity and eternity past, that's when God chose you. Back before World War I, before Charles Spurgeon, before the light bulb was invented, before America was founded, before the Puritans, before the Renaissance, before the Dark Ages, before Augustine, Before the apostles turned the world upside down, before Christ walked the earth in a body like ours, before the prophets prophesied of the coming wrath of God and the coming Messiah, before the Pythagorean theorem was discovered and proven, before King David slayed Goliath, before the parting of the Red Sea, before the Tower of Babel, before the flood, before Adam and Eve fell, before God spoke, let there be light. God chose to save you. Revelation 13.8 speaks of our names being written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain in this book are written all of the names of the elect that's how personal the selection of god is is that your name is written in a book of life these names are the names that christ died for the names of the ones that the Father gave to the Son, the names of the one who would make up the bride of Christ, the names of the ones who would come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. He wrote your name down before there was even a planet. In that passage in Revelation, these names are the people who do not worship the beast, It speaks of the whole world falling for the beast's deceitfulness and worshiping him. And the only thing that will keep anyone from not worshiping the beast is whether or not their name was written in the book of life. This sovereign choosing of God in eternity past, my friends, is the reason why you are not deceived by the evil one this morning. Why are you not deceived in following the things of the world? Because God wrote your name in a book. That's why. Because you personally were thought of in the mind of the Father and eternity past because He chose freely to set His love upon you before He created the world. That is why you belong to Him now and no longer belong to the Prince of the power of the air following your own sinful passions. This leads us to the purpose of our election. The purpose of our election Look at the rest of verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The word that seems like a small, insignificant word, but now it indicates to us that He's giving us purpose. Lest we be tempted to think that since God elected me, I have a license to live as I please. Paul instructs us, In into what we were elected, or what we were elected unto. We were chosen of God in eternity past. What does he say? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. You cannot live in sin and be holy. You cannot continue on in the old way of life and be holy. You cannot ignore the clear teachings of Scripture and be holy. You cannot live in constant aggravation with your spouse and be holy. You cannot look at things on the internet that you should not be looking at and be holy. You cannot follow the prince of the power of the air and be holy. You cannot delay obedience to what God has commanded us to and be holy. God has chosen us to be set apart from the world. But not just the world, also our own old way of thinking. I heard somebody getting out of... uh, I was putting gas the other day and... uh, person nearby was getting out of the vehicle and i have no idea what was going on in their mind or their conversation i just heard her say this generation is lost and i thought to myself we a lot people say that all the time but every generation is lost every single generation has always been lost Whether it was in the 1900s, in the good old days, where people didn't wear shoes and they walked 15 miles in the snow to school. People were lost then. People are lost today. That's why God chooses us to be holy and blameless. Because guess what? We're not. That means not just the world is lost. That means you and I are lost apart from God. Romans 12.2 tells us very clearly. To be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Think differently now. There's this idea in church culture today that says that God knew that you were a sinner. He knew that you'd have your hangups and flaws. You know what? But God knows your heart and he loves you anyway. You can. He's going to kind of give you a pass, kiddo. You're going to get to heaven. He's going to kind of pat you on the head and say it was all right no problem but what does the text say is that we were chosen to be holy and blameless friends blameless do you understand the weight of blamelessness none among us are blameless ever but this is what God has chosen us to it means that We're not holy. We were unholy and very much blamed for our own sins because of our own sinfulness. But in God choosing us in Christ, He's choosing not to deal with His elect according to their sin, but according to the righteousness and holiness and blamelessness of His own Son. Not our own sin. That reminds us much of the doctrine of total depravity, doesn't it? Next, the benefit of our election. Look at verse 5. It says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I would like to deal with this word predestined. It's used in the sense of determining something ahead of time or before its occurrence. This is really the larger picture, the larger idea of what election is. And the category it falls under is predestination. Election is specifically referring to salvation. But predestination can also refer to God's larger foreordaining of events to take place. What do I mean? I mean that that there is this popular idea of the sovereignty of God. That he's kind of just standing next to the timeline of human history and watching it. So that he can intervene and react to situations whenever they happen. And so that he can then make, keep good on his promise of Romans 8.28 to, to, to make all things work out for our good. And so he's watching and seeing what's going to happen. What's going to happen? It's kind of like my baby when I hold him on my knee. And he's got a heavy head, folks. He can't hold it up yet. Give him a second. And so he gets wobbly. And, you know, he starts doing the wobbly number and almost tips over. And what I'm needing to do is watch him to make sure that he doesn't fall to his demise. That's not what God's doing. All of human history is enacting what God has spoken. God is not reacting. Human history is enacting what God has already determined to happen. Think through this with me for a moment. In Genesis 3, God is pronouncing curses after the fall. And he tells us what is to come, doesn't he? Verse 15 in chapter 3. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As you know, this is God the Father speaking of the Son and Satan's eventual defeat on the cross. Folks, this is in the garden. This is before the earth was teeming with life as it is today. God is forecasting, he is foretelling what is going to happen. That eventually, he's going to send a seed who's going to defeat the evil one. This is again before the earth was teeming with human life as it is today. Now think of how many people must have been born between that prophecy and Jesus' actual coming. I'm sure the figure is astronomical. Now think of all of the decisions that people make on a day-to-day basis. Think of the fact that sin is in the world now and it's going to wreak havoc. Think of how just one person going right instead of left could possibly alter the entire course of human history and totally thwart God's plan. Yet, none of it happened. Now think of Mary and Joseph. They didn't choose to have Jesus, did they? Mary didn't choose to be the mother of Jesus. Joseph, in fact, almost ran away. Yet he didn't. And Mary was chosen. Think of the people surrounding Jesus in his lifetime on earth. Think of how many times the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus throughout his ministry. As you read through the Gospels, they even picked up stones to stone him at a few points. They were ready to kill Jesus but he wasn't killed. He wasn't, nothing ever happened to him until it was time. Think of Judas betraying Jesus. Did you realize that Jesus, Judas's betrayal of Jesus was prophesied? Think of Peter denying Jesus, which, by the way, that was prophesied as well. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. Think of Jesus being pierced for our transgressions and crushed For our iniquities, as Isaiah prophesied. Now listen, with that in mind, to what the disciples pray in Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Listen to all those people that are gathered together. Verse 28. To do... Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What is he saying? The suffering of Jesus was predetermined, it was predetermined. Destined that all of these people, who? All of the people of Israel, the Gentiles, Herod, Pontius Pilate, that they would do what they did in the manner that they did it when they did it. God had predestined this to happen. What is this saying? That nothing in all of human history could have thwarted God's perfect plan because God had predestined it all to take place. All of the things that happened to Jesus, the tremendous suffering, God predestined it. Now, in the same way, think of all that has transpired in your life. Think of the many ways and moments that you possibly could have died. Or maybe even times that you thought you would die. What about during COVID? Think of the people that you've met. The times that you heard the gospel And you hardened your heart against it. The people you heard it from. Yet nothing thwarted God's plan to save you. Why? Because God predestined your salvation. God guaranteed your salvation. When he wrote your name in the book of life. There was nothing that was going to stop God from saving you. Not even Your own hardened, rebellious, sin-loving heart was able to stop God's plan to save you. Why? Because you were predestined for adoption. Did you see that in the text? Look at it again. In verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. And he did this in love. This is the benefit of our election. We come to know this great, unfathomable love of the Father as we learn that before anything was created, that we were in the heart and the mind of the Father as He set His love upon us, freely choosing to one day make us a part of His holy, heavenly family. We learned last week of our utter ruin because of sin of how desperately wicked we are. And now this doctrine teaches us that despite us at one time being his enemy, that God chose us to make us a part of his family. The theologian Louis Burkhoff says, quote, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. End quote. Think about that for a moment. We study these doctrines because they are true, of course, but also because one day you're going to go through something. One day you might find yourself getting the report from the doctor that you don't want to hear. You might hit serious financial hardships. You might lose a loved one. You might be pushed to the absolute limits in your mind and your heart where you feel like you just can't take it anymore and why bother with all of this God stuff if bad things continue to happen to you anyway. In that moment, you'll need to have the sure footing of the knowledge of the sovereign and loving God under your feet to keep you from dashing your hopes against the rocks. You'll be tempted to think that God has somehow stopped loving you because of the mess in your life. Or maybe he loves other people more than he loves you and you're sort of the redheaded stepchild in his heavenly family who he doesn't, you're kind of there, but no one's really paying attention to you. In that moment you will need to be reminded that you're an adopted son or daughter of God and that he will never stop loving you because he never started. Moreover, you did not do anything to get God to love you and you cannot make him stop loving you. Friends, I encourage you to take hold of this great truth of the predestining love of the Father, so that when life gets really, really hard, you can find great comfort when you need it most. Now, this begs the question, why would he do this? Let's look at the cause of our election. Verse 5, the last, last half. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. The word here for purpose is meaning a delightful, fixed intention of benevolent favor. It is good pleasure. It is signifying that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ because it was his good pleasure to do so. Because it was his delight. There was nothing constraining God. No one coercing God or influencing God in any way to choose you. He chose you according to his own good pleasure and he was delighted to do it. Listen to John Owen. Quote, election is founded on divine love because it is free and undeserved. End quote. This text answers the argument that a lot of people like to put forward when pushing back against the idea of sovereign election, which is, they say that maybe God looked down the timeline of human history and He was looking to see who would choose His Son. Who's going to say yes to Jesus? Oh, I see that person does. I see that person does. I see a hand back there. And He elects those people unto salvation, but who chose first? You did, and he elected you because you chose. They say that they say this because you know election and predestination is clearly taught in Scripture. You can't get away from it, so you have to deal with it. And so we explain it away and saying, "Well, well, maybe he he just looked ahead and he saw that I was going to choose him, and that's why he elected me." It's funny because people will say that they believe that God is sovereign. But, did anyone's mom ever teach them that whenever you say the word but, it negates everything that you just said? I'm sorry, but, well, you're not really sorry then, are you? I believe God is sovereign, but, well, is God sovereign or not? God is either all the way in control of all things at all times, or he's not. And my friend, if If God is looking down the timeline of human history and He's seeing who's going to do what and He's learning something that He didn't already know, God is not all-knowing. God is learning something that He didn't know. Would we dare say that God is not all-knowing? Surely not. Further, if God can't do anything unless you say it's okay, who's really sovereign? You are God. If you have the ability to... Keep God from doing something that he really wants to do but can't. My friends, you're sovereign. In which case, how are you holding up the sun in the sky right now? That's impressive. No, the reality is that the text tells us that God chose according to the purpose of his own will. Again, that means because he was delighted to do so. Because it was his own will, his own choice you want to know who actually has free will? You and I think that we do. And that's the most common argument against a sovereign election is well, well free will, free will, free will. But if you have free will, then never sin again. Stop sinning. Do you is your will really free? Then stop sinning. Never sin again. Oh, you can't do it. Well, that's strange. See, we don't have free will in the sense that we think we do. We have the ability to choose, and we are responsible for our choices, but we choose according to our nature. Just the same way that if you were to lock a vulture in a room and there's a pile of carrots and a pile of meat, well, that vulture's 10 times out of 10 is going to go and get that big, smelly pile of meat. Because it's the vulture's nature to choose that. And you and I, being totally depraved, our nature is to choose sin until God makes us new and gives us a new nature, making us now able to choose Him. And this is all done because of His own good and perfect plan. Now, there are some other arguments here. What of my loved ones who are lost? Do I give up on them because they're not elect? Obviously, they're not elect. By no means. You and I haven't a clue who the Father has elected to give to the Son. We've never read the book of life. We don't know whose names are there. Continue praying for them. Continue sharing the gospel with them, and with this doctrine in your mind and in your heart, rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that you're not going to be the one who saves your family. God has to do it. God has to save, or no one is saved. Well, why about why evangelize? Why why? What about missions? Why why send missionaries? Let us never entertain the sort of foolish thinking that would say we don't need to evangelize because God's going to save his own people. John ten sixteen, Jesus speaking, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Jesus has other sheep. In other words, don't just be content that you're a sheep. Jesus has other sheep and we must go get them and bring them in. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so now then, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We evangelize because Christ has other sheep and those sheep need to hear the gospel so that they might hear the call of the Shepherd. The doctrines of grace don't cool our hearts for the lost, but instead ought to give us a zeal for the lost and confidence knowing that we just need to proclaim the gospel and be prayerful and Christ's sheep will hear his voice. They will. Another common argument is why doesn't God choose to save everyone? It doesn't seem to be very fair because if God is choosing some, then that means that some aren't being chosen. I want you to think back to Deuteronomy 7, 6. He said, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of this earth. When God chose Israel to be his people, guess what that meant? That he also was not choosing Egypt, he was not choosing Canaan, he was not choosing the Philistines, he was choosing Israel out of all of the people. Psalm one forty seven, twenty. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. God gave Israel the promises, the covenants, the law, and from the Jewish people eventually would come Christ. He did this because he chose them, and he did not do this for any of the other nations. And so it is today. God has freely chosen to save some people from their sin and has chosen to leave some other people in their sin. Listen to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, By the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. Perhaps you're inclined to see this as unfair. I'd like to answer that the way that R.C. Sproul brilliantly displayed. Is God's mercy and grace evil? All of us would say no. Is God being evil when he is just? When he punishes sin? All of us would, of course, say no. No. So let us be reminded then that we have already charged that all are under sin, all are condemned and deserve hell. God could have left us all in that state with everyone going to hell. And my friends, he would have been perfectly righteous and just to do that because we would be the deserving ones. But he didn't do that, did he? Instead, he freely chose to save some from going to hell, thus showing them his grace and mercy. Is God being evil and showing his grace to undeserving sinners? Of course not. For those who he does not bestow his unmerited favor upon, what do they get? Not evil. They get justice. They receive the just punishment for their sin. Some are getting mercy. Some are getting justice. No one is getting injustice. If you are tempted here to begin to question God because this isn't sitting well with you, Paul states in response to that sort of questioning in Romans nine eleven, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Instead of asking why he doesn't save everyone, the proper question is, why does he save anyone? More specifically, why did he save me? Understanding that God has chosen us before Beforehand for glory, according to his own good and perfect will, even though there was nothing redeemable in and of ourselves, it should not lead us to anger but to worship. Verse six I told you it was bookended to the praise of his glorious grace. The knowledge of God electing you unto salvation before the foundation of the world with no regard to any merit in you, knowing that he predestined you to adoption into his family, should not cause you to puff up in pride, but bow in worship. If you will remember from the introduction to this series, we read from Romans 11 that told us that all things are from, through, and to God, all for His glory. Friends, that means salvation as well. Thus, God choosing you without any consideration to your own merit, His predestining you to be His child, is meant to result not just in your own salvation, but in worship of His unfathomable grace shown to you in Christ Jesus. So question, do you know this grace? Do you know this wonderful truth of God's sovereign election deep in your soul? Does your heart testify this morning that you are no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God? In a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to see the gospel on display in the observance of the two ordinances of the Lord's Supper In baptism, we're going to testify to the God who became flesh and dwelt among us, living a perfect and blameless life, that he might go to the cross and bear the full measure of our sins and the wrath meant for us. We're going to testify to the body broken and blood spilled in our place. Then when we see baptism, we will hear testimony of those who put their faith in Christ Jesus and were made new, being resurrected to newness of life in Christ. But if you are not in Christ this morning, if you have not tasted this grace that we have been speaking of this morning, my friend, don't delay. Come to Him this morning. Call out to Him from the depths of your heart that he might save you. As the publican prayed in temple one day, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, the all-seeing God whose eyes are in every place, who see the depths of our heart and our soul and our mind, Nothing is hidden from your gaze, your righteous and holy gaze. As we come before the Lord's table, we ask that you would search us and know us. If there is anything that is grievous to you, that you would reveal it and bring it to the forefront of our mind. Grant us repentance to turn from it. Lord, I pray that we would not partake in an unworthy manner this morning. Lord, I pray that as we have dealt with the weighty doctrine of unconditional election, that if there is any lingering worry or fretfulness about this doctrine, that you would, as we do this, Lord, bring comfort. God, all I can do is proclaim. You have to get the word to our hearts to transform us. I pray that you would do that this morning I pray that we would worship you for electing people like us Lord I pray that you would bless the receiving of the bread and the juice help us to remember the body broken and the blood spilled as we observe baptism that we would celebrate dying to the old way and being resurrected anew in Christ. All for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.